Listener Production. Hey guys, it's Antoinette Latouf here. Welcome to our summer series of the Weekend Briefing. Over summer, we're featuring some of your favourite and our favourite interviews from throughout the year. And in today's episode, Jamila Rizvi speaks to author Elise Lunan and she chats about her journey from leading the wellness industry at Goop to leaving it all together. Hey, Elise, welcome to the Weekend Briefing. Thank you for having me. Look, I'm thrilled to have you. Everyone, uh, I feel like we should let all of our listeners in on what's been happening behind the scenes. We've been practising saying Melbourne. 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 Uh, I had to do it. That was cruel. I had to do it. But I am so thrilled to have you with us. And I'm um, really excited today to dive deep into your book on our best behaviour, The Price Women Pay to Be Good. And I know as an author myself, there's nothing more awkward than chatting to someone where they try and tell you what your book's about. So why don't you give our listeners a quick gist before we go in deep? Because I have loved every page. Thank you. Well, I feel like of everyone I've spoken to, you probably could not only tell me about what my book's about, but probably write it better, right? Uh, Um, That is a definite lie. (laughs) There's some good synergy. So essentially the book is about the thesis is that women are culturally coded for to achieve goodness. I put that in air quotes or square quotes. And men are conditioned and programmed for power. And in our quest to be quote unquote good women, we disown ourselves, and um, but it's completely understandable why this is what we pursue. This is what promises safety and security in our patriarchal culture. You know, good women don't need rest, have no appetites, desires, hungers, wants, needs. They don't need any attention or validation, and they're never upset about any of it. Now, this is quite a personal book, and I think a lot of the thinking and the writing in this space is very structural, right? And your book certainly thinks about and talks about the structures uh, of patriarchy that make us behave in certain ways. But the perspective you've taken is quite personal to you and quite personal to the reader as well. As I was going through, I felt like we weren't necessarily waiting for the world to change. We were going to try and change ourselves first a little bit. When did you first come personally to this understanding of the world expecting you to be good. There's going to be a lot of air quotes, everyone, uh, in the way you speak of. Yeah. So I opened the book in 2019 and I'm in my therapist's office and I have an anxiety disorder where I chronically hyperventilate. And most people, when they think of hyperventilation, they think of rapidly breathing into a paper bag. But this is different. This is a classic brain-body mix-up where your lungs are oversaturated with oxygen, but it feels like you can't take a deep breath. So when you get to the top, you hit a wall, which Mm. is panic-inducing. And the only way to take a deep breath is to sigh or yawn. And so you get into this horrible cycle where you look very sleepy and sedate, but inside you feel like you're going to die. And I'm sure listeners... Um, will say, oh my God, that's what that is because it's not really diagnosed. My dad's a lung doctor actually. So that's why I know what's happening. doesn't make it any less anxiety provoking. But when it started in my 20s, I thought, okay, well, I understand 
why I'm stressed. I'm living paycheck to paycheck. Someday I will feel good enough. I will escape this. I will reach safety and security and all of my anxiety will abate. And so 20 years later in 2019, I'm in an incredibly high achieving life. I'm married. I have two children. From the outside, it looks like I'm really doing it all. And yet I was with my therapist because I had been hyperventilating for two months every day. And I was exhausted, feeling like I was going to die and recognizing that I would never, ever outrun this. I would never feel good enough, thin enough, smart enough, all of the enoughs. And that I had to understand, I had to deprogram myself. I had to understand what these voices were that were chasing me and pursuing me. And I had to know where they came from. And that's where I opened the book is... What are these voices? I know I'm not alone. I know they're not actually coming from my parents who are progressive liberal people. They're not coming from Mm. my husband. This is a bigger cultural whisper and it's ancient. And so, but it took me a minute to identify all those messages and the way that they intersect and how they form a system. And I attached it to an ancient system, one that was shocking to me because I wasn't raised in a religious household at all, but that it's the seven deadly sins. It's sloth, pride, envy, greed, gluttony, lust, anger. These all circumscribe specifically the lives of women. You know, the first thing I I attach onto there is the idea of sloth. And you said that one of the ways that your experience manifested was that you had to yawn in order to get enough air. And I'm trying to think what it would feel like if I was, you know, in meetings with a colleague all day who kept yawning or my husband kept yawning at me. I'd either be insulted because I felt like they were bored or I'd kind of be like, well, like, are you showing up to work, mate? That must have that must have felt really strange for someone who's so clearly driven and hardworking to have your body and brain betraying you that way. Yeah, it's very, it's cognitive dissonance in a way to sort of appear to the world like you're verging on narcolepsy, you know, and yet inside all you can think about is, am I going to be able to take a deep breath this time? If not, maybe next time. It is a consuming and disorienting state that is, it's, it's so weird to think about how I managed to work in host podcasts and function despite feeling like I couldn't breathe. Yeah. It is amazing what a human being can keep doing and how you can keep showing up and hide so much underneath. There can be so much happening beyond, you know, underneath the surface that we don't project at all and that nobody around us has any idea of. I want to ask you a little bit more about these seven deadly sins. I'm also not religious and was not raised in a religious household. Are they in the Bible? No, this is. (laughs) I haven't read it. No, no, they're not. So I assumed, of course, like you, that they were. And so I went to look and understand where they came from. And so I was looking for the verse and it doesn't exist. So they actually came, which is funny because some people, you know, one of the criticisms on social media is that this is somehow like anti-God and and it's like, well, that's anti-Pope Gregory in 590, but like (laughs) this isn't gospel. So they came out of the Egyptian desert in the fourth century at the same time that the New Testament was being canonized which, you know, is for people who don't know, I think we think of the the New Testament, which is the four books as sort of 
this intact gospel. This is what it mm-hmm. was and what it's always been, but it's an edited version of the gospels that were in circulation at the time. Some of them were cast out and deemed heretical um, and destroyed. We will we'll never know sort of all of the quote unquote books. So these are the four. Um, meanwhile, this monk in the Egyptian desert wrote down these eight demonic thoughts, but demon meaning distraction, not necessarily, you know, the devil that we would think of today. And they just wandered around as a set. He wrote them down for monks to sort of keep themselves from being distracted during prayer. And then it was in 590, the Pope Gregory I turned them into the cardinal vices. And in the same homily, he assigned them all to Mary Magdalene, who he conflated with the woman who anoints Jesus's feet with her hair, different woman, but he turns them into the same woman and he turns her into a penitent prostitute. So that's where that all started and said, she is the carrier of the seven deadly sins. And then she wore that reputation until like 1980, I think is when the, whoever was Pope at the time said, we made a mistake and she wasn't a prostitute. And then in 2016, Pope Francis turned her into the apostle to the apostles, but the damage was done. As we know, reputational damage to a woman is hard to shake, um, particularly when our value culturally is goodness. So all you have to do is say that a woman's bad, a bad mother, a bad person, a bad coworker, toxic, whatever it is that we say to quote unquote cancel a woman or uh, defame her or degrade her. So that's what happened to Mary Magdalene. So the sins are new, relatively. Yeah. If you count the 500s, it's new. The <laughs> sins are new, but the demonization of women, that's been around a little bit longer. Yes. That's, been, that's been going on for longer than that. Let's start with the seven deadly sins. We're going to start with envy because that was the first one I picked and I suspect that says something about me. Mm-hmm. Who do you envy and how does envy show up in your life? Yeah, I'm glad you picked envy. It's really the gateway to all the other sins. And it's where I started the book because I had this conversation with the psychotherapist, Lori Gottlieb, maybe five years ago. And she said um, in her book, maybe you should talk to someone. I tell my clients to pay attention to their envy because envy shows you what you want. And this was a groundbreaking revelation for me because of course I've always disavowed my envy. It's gross, it's bad, ew, Um, And envy is very intimate, you know, it's one-to-one, whereas jealousy, which we conflate envy with, is triangulated. There's usually a third party involved, another boy or girl. So envy is one-to-one. Someone has something or is doing something that you want. And what was so shocking about what Lori said is that I didn't, I was like, well, what do I want? I don't know. You know, we don't do a great job um, of modeling for, for women what it is to have wants and to go after them, right? And so I think that we're often dislocated from our wanting because we subjugate our wants to other people's needs. And so it's hard to identify both that and also envy. And so my thesis was that all the the women on women hate, maybe not all of it, but a substantial part of it was born from undiagnosed envy that we would have it come up in us, it would feel so uncomfortable, gross, bad. We would suppress it and then project it. And so the way I figured out what I wanted and who I was envious of was by noticing when I would say things like, I just don't like her. 
she rubs me the wrong way, who does she think she is, or would I would find myself deprecating her, like I didn't think her book was really that good, or, you know, Mm. again, along those who does she think she is lines. It's gross. It's horrible to admit, but it was so helpful because it was information, full of information that these women were just pushing on a dream I had for myself. That's why they were, quote unquote, tormenting me, like mentoring me in what I wanted. And that instead of deprecating them or taking sort of the scarcity mindset of because she has it, I can't have it. Yeah. And instead saying, let what she's doing be a model for what's possible for me. And I understand why there's scarcity. There's scarcity. It's real. But that I could take that and use it. And it's why, you know, I have ghostwritten 12 books. And I had to ghostwrite 12 books before I could own that I wanted to write my own. Mm. You talk about the involvement of envy in the mother-daughter relationship. Can you tell everyone a little bit about that while I sit with my supreme discomfort at this concept? (laughs) Yes. And I'm really grateful to my mom that she let me write about her. And and I wrote about her and this concept in the book. And then I wrote about a New York Times op-ed about this as well, which is that my mom was always really honest about not wanting children. But for her, it felt like the only choice in order to secure her own livelihood. She grew up in a resource-strapped poor family, and she married my dad, who was a doctor, and he wanted kids. And she was really clear that this was not the crowning ambition of her life. But she sort of came of age, and I think many of our mothers came of age during second wave feminism when they kind of had a choice and kind of didn't and felt bad regardless of which path they chose. And it's a really heavy inheritance that we don't really talk about, which is that many of our mothers didn't live a full expression of their lives. And they have a lot of ambivalence about that, which I believe we can feel, right? And we sense that bad feeling. We can't, we don't quite know what it is. And so many of us, you know, take it personally, which I completely understand And there's so much intergenerational envy because with my mom, she gave me everything she couldn't give herself. And so she was living somewhat vicariously through me, but also sort of a little angry about it, Mm. to be honest. And we can talk about it, which is healing and healthy. But I think for a lot of people, it's not, again, it's present, but it's not named and it's a big thing that we we pass on generation to generation. It is a big thing. And I think, you know, reflecting on my own life, I think it can go the other way as well. Like, I, you know, I think I, of my own relationship with my mum and sometimes I think the things I've wanted to do at work, she's felt as a somehow a, a rejection of the way she lived her life because yes. her life was kids first and nothing else. Everything else doesn't matter. And I think for her that that happened to be quite a true thing. And then to watch her daughters do something else almost felt like a comment on, on her own yes. choices, like they were wrong somehow when, you know, I'd never presumed to make choices for my own mum. Yeah. I mean, then you have to get into really weird stuff. I had to think about choosing my dad, all sorts of stuff. And we're not going there, folks. We're just going <laughs> to abort that particular conversation. It's true, though. Everything's an indictment of what your mom did in one direction yeah. or another. Everything is. Yeah. Yeah. 
You know, I uh, oh, see so you don't know this, but my my friend, I um, occasionally do this to our lovely listeners in that I drop brain tumors uh, into conversation because I am someone who lives with a recurrent brain tumor. That's mm-hmm. very normal for me to talk about. So uh, hold back on this. But when I was first diagnosed. Um, we learned that the tumour had been there since I was born and uh, was, you know, a strange confluence of DNA. And my mum's reaction was, oh, it's my fault. Mm. And I remember thinking at the time, I mean, Dad's not doing that. Dad's not sitting there going, let me be introspective about my own DNA and what it's done wrong. She felt like she'd done something wrong and, and I think got quite defensive and was worried about blame in a, in a big way when, of course, she'd done nothing wrong whatsoever. There was no control. I want to ask about the idea of being selfish because I think our current generations of women, more than generations of women in the past, have a capacity to be selfish more than they used to be able to simply by virtue of having more choice. But making decisions in your own self-interest still feel like something we should apologise for somehow. And I, I, I feel like that's partly linked to this concept of of greed. Do you think that's fair? Yeah, I do think that's fair. I think that too, what what happens, or at least what I've experienced in my life is that selfishness then also becomes sort of relegated to um, areas of self-improvement, which some of those are good, but sometimes it's like it becomes an exercise too for women where it's like, it's great to be sort of self-obsessed or focused on your appearance, you know, as a commodity in our culture. Whereas I still think that we have very little uh, tolerance for women who go out and ask for more money, right? And, or ask for more responsibility unless we couch it in quote unquote weak language and make it someone else's idea or make them seem like the benefactor. I mean, all the social science, as you know, is all just completely reconfirms for us that to say what you want and go after it is reviled in women and often punished and not so for men. And then we're told compoundingly that it's our fault, right? That we should just be more confident. We should go out and get it. And it's, I think we all know, even if it's not conscious, we've all been conditioned by our culture to know, like, you can't do that. You have to caveat. You have to use, I, you know, I, I'm so, sorry. I'm sure you thought of this. Sorry if this is, you know, we all know these shortcuts in language and the way that we minimize in order to get our needs met. And overtly doing that is still so punished, not only by men, men to women, but women to women. Let's play with the concept of greed for a little bit. How do you think greed shows up in women's lives most prominently? Do you think it's around money or is it around status? Uh, Money, I think, although I'm very curious to hear your perspective on this. Um, And in the book, it's funny, it was hard to argue for greed, right? When we have, you know, we're racking up ecological credit card debt and it feels like (laughs) the last thing that we need to be encouraging anyone to do is to be more, quote unquote, greedy. But what happens to women is that we are sort of the double-edged sword. 
One, we're taught that money's not really for us. It's based to talk about money. Money is gross and dirty. Um, don't negotiate all of these things. We talk a lot about the pay gap, but in the U.S., the wealth gap is 32 cents to a dollar. Yeah. So women are just way behind and in this compounding investment world. And then we're simultaneously told that it's our job as household CEOs to hold up the economy, you know, and we're extolled to buy, buy, buy and shop and we're marketed to endlessly. And so it's like spend, don't save, et cetera. This is like a really toxic cycle that specifically, it's like men are over there just socking it away and talking about it, sharing information, getting more money and making more money. And women are encouraged, told to spend it. And when you're not allowed to talk about it, you can't name it. You can't, like one of the most impactful exercises that I did in the book, and this is shortly after I left my job and I was freaking out and how am I, I'm the primary breadwinner. How am I going to do this? And I was speaking to sort of a therapist type and she said, I said, I, I just won't have enough, which is a very real concern. I think we have all said that, right? Yeah. And she said to me, well, what's enough? And, you know, I was like, well, what do you mean? She was like, have have you written it down? And I hadn't. And this might sound like a budget, but it's like, right, I wrote down all my needs, the family's needs, added it up, got my arms around a number when I was like, oh, I can do this. I can do this. You know, it was very calming. And then I made myself write down some things I wanted, which was actually embarrassing, which was interesting to work with that, to have those wants. And then I had a number. I had something real rather than this like abyss of I'll never have enough, which is how I think most of us live. Mm. I feel like greed shows up most in my life around time. I feel like I'm Mm. greedy for time and that often my time to pursue what I want to do or what I need to do feels less available than it does for men in my life. I don't want to finger point at my husband, but finger pointing at my husband as well. And a big part of that is the venturing of women into workplaces and into paid work in far greater proportions without the accompanying exit of men into unpaid work and taking up unpaid childcare duties, unpaid domestic work, unpaid mental load, whatever it might be. And so I feel like as a result, there's a lot of women who there's the greed for money that exists, sure, but the thing that I'd like to see more women in my life be is greedy for time and say, no, mm-hmm. I I deserve some of that too and I want more of that pie that means that I get more time to pursue the things that are important to me rather than doing what is necessary around the home because I not just feel like I might be judged if it's not good enough, but I know I will be judged if it's not good enough. Oh, I feel you. I mean, this is this is a chapter on sloth. This is about the inequity that women experience both at work and then at home. And here's the thing that's tough about the book because all of the exterior social inequity has to be addressed, right? Like it's just all of the the social science around the way that we treat men and women differently has to be addressed. And yet what I found in the chapter on sloth, exactly what you were saying is that I could not allow myself rest. Yeah. You know, all the great leaps in our thinking collectively happen when 
you know, primarily white men who have access to leisure are like gambling around the neighborhood and then they're, or they're listening to music and then suddenly they understand relativity, right? Um, yeah. You need those moments of, of just rest for your brain and also for your body. And what I had found is that my husband, like yours, lovely feminist guy, but he's really good at relaxing. And meanwhile, like as he pointed out to me, we, in the course of our marriage, you haven't spent more than 20 minutes watching a show on Netflix with me because there's this internal cattle prod where I'm up because I can never do enough, never do enough. So I'm like doing the dishes and then I'm, and what I realized, I had so much anger at him, understandably, to some extent. And yet I had this moment of revelation as I became more conscious of my behavior that nobody was asking me to do this. These aren't his expectations. He's not saying like these are, I want dinner, you know, home cooked. I want a perfectly clean house. This is, these are my quote unquote standards and expectations of myself in part because of this, the society that we live in where it's embarrassing to have a filthy house and you better be feeding your children nutritious home cooked meals. But that I had to stop myself and it's collective effort, I think a collective sort of awakening um, around the way that we're enforcing this for ourselves and then pushing it onto each other or policing this in each other and establishing standards that none of us can meet. But it's hard to not abide by status quo. It's hard to be the one mom whose house is a hoarder's episode, you know? Yeah, I do, painfully. I was trying to think of a cute segue, but I'm not going to do it. But when I'm tired, I eat a lot. So let's talk about gluttony. (laughs) Oh, yes, please. Um, So gluttony is one of the ones I struggle with because I think I get the theory in this space. I'm just no good at the practice. I know that food is essential for life and that being intuitive about what I eat and what my body needs is a good thing to be. And yet, the idea of eating particularly certain kinds of foods and to any version of excess, there's the air quotes again, everybody, I demonize that to a degree. I'm not sure I demonize any other behavior. Like I think I do that more than anything else. And it's where words like bad and gross start to creep in. Mm -hmm. How on earth do we break that cycle that so many women experience, and I know I know there are gender diverse people and men who experience it as well, but that so many women experience. How do we break that cycle if knowing the theory is not enough? Well, it's really, it's an impossible. I don't know any woman, honestly, who isn't somewhat disordered about mm. their eating. You know, we range, as you just said, from restrictive to permitting. You know, I was bad last night. Now I need to be good. Like endless moralizing about our bodies and our plates, and you have to keep eating, right? So it's an ever-present taking up a huge amount of rent in our minds. And then you get into the medical system where in America, I'm assuming it's the same here, it's incredibly anti-fat, yeah. like just baked in. That, And that becomes the primary measure of health, even though we know that that's a fallacy, right? That you can be quote-unquote thin and have a lot of, fat around your organs, or you can just drop dead. Like it happens. It happened to my 
seemingly perfectly healthy brother-in-law. Like it happens. But we're convinced that when we see someone who has a non-conforming body to today's beauty standards, that they lack discipline, that they're essentially immoral. They're a bad person, lazy, gluttonous, the whole Mm. thing. And we're very specifically, and yes, it, it happens to men too, but we're particularly and specifically cruel to women. And it's so sad because it's a tremendous waste of our essential energy yeah. to spend it in a state of self-hate and self-criticism. It means that we're severed from our appetite and from one of the primary ways to experience pleasure and joy in the world. And you see it even more. I mean, Ozempic's a whole nother thing, but it's like to choose medicalized anorexia. I'm not talking about people who are diagnosed uh, type 2 diabetics. I know it can be a life-saving intervention, but there are a lot of people in Los Angeles who are uh, quote-unquote normal weight or below who are on Ozempic. And it's really sad to imagine that you would rather live your life on a drug that's not intended for you so that you can be then. The only thing it offers, and I know this sounds so strange, but... My new MO as I move through the world and I start having this is I'm like, oh, probably they're on Ozempic and I don't want to be on Ozempic. And so I have this theory that as it becomes more and more present and available and affordable, it's very expensive in the U.S. outside of a prescription, that it'll be like being a bottled blonde. So you can be platinum if you mm-hmm. want, mm-hmm. that maybe it loses its value thinness. If everyone can do it. Yeah, trying to imagine that world and how different that world would be to live in if it did lose its value and it did lose its power. And to go back to your central thesis, it's association, you know, the way we associate thinness with with goodness and, and moral superiority. Yeah. Now, one of the frustrating things about this show, Elise, is that it's too short to get through all seven sins. So I've got to <laughs> get myself to one more before we wrap it up. But I don't want to leave without talking about pride and coming back to um, something you did mention earlier, which is that you have ghostwritten an enormous number of books, which to me is, you know, ghostwriting is an exercise in combating pride. It is an enormous amount of work that essentially you never really take credit for. What did it feel like to make the shift from being behind the scenes to being center stage and publishing a piece of work under your own name. Yeah, I mean, it was a, a massive shift for me, as you said, because I'd spent my entire career. I mean, I started working at a magazine that didn't have bylines. I've spent all of my time <laughs> hiding behind brands and founders and doing whatever I could to be uh, an anonymous voice and to, you know, recognizing the power of other people's platforms is far superior to mine. So like, let's just push the information out that way. And there's some good, I mean, I, I, I don't have shame about it, but it did really get to the point of being perverse almost um, that this complete disowning of my own voice and ideas needed to if not stop, then be addressed. And I know that you guys have tall poppy syndrome here, that it's a big thing. It's different in America, slightly less stated, but just as overt. Yeah, We are terrible to women who dare to be seen or 
have a dream and live it in any sort of significant or big way. We just, you know, you see it with celebrities, whether they're musicians or actors, where they reach sort of a, we, we cheer them on until we see them hit a point in the sky when we think that they need to be put back in their place, yeah. a little too big for their britches, and then we just destroy them. And it's a playbook, and we can dissociate from that and say, you know, I'm a civilian, like that has nothing to do with me. But it has everything to do with all of us. This is what we do to visible women. And the message is, do not be seen. Do not share your gifts with the world. You will be destroyed. And that I had really, I had really inhabited that fear. And it's present for me. And But I also am like, well, let it be meta. Like, let it happen to me as like a meta statement about exactly what I'm writing about. Well, Elise, I am so glad that you found the willingness to lean into pride sufficiently to give us this book and to be talking about it and having conversations like this one. They are so important. Everyone, the book is on our best behaviour, the price women pay to be good. And Alicia deserves one massive round of applause. Thanks for being my guest. Thank you for having me. Well, I hope you loved that chat between Jamila and Elise. That is it for this week. Thank you so much for being with us and tuning in. It is always a pleasure to have you. And if you want more of the weekend briefing, you can find us on the Listener app. You can download the Listener app in the App Store and you can follow us there. Otherwise, follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. And why not give us a rating and a review for this fabulous interview? And just an FYI, you can review and rate every episode. We love to hear from you. Stay safe, everyone. Listener.